Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Romaniacs. Less than a month to go until the general election and Nigel Farage has thrown the electoral dice. Dice with a frankly disturbing amount of pork scratching residue on them. <laughs> we'll be looking at what that means. And having ruined democracy, television and Christmas, Brexit now destroys something else. The Clash, who are definitely Boris Johnson's favourite band and he's listened to the lyrics and everything. Should he stay or should he go? Straight to hell, Boris. I'm noted, um, quotes, friend of Nick Clegg, Naomi Smith. (laughs) (laughs) And today we're putting on our blue and yellow galoshes and stomping through the floodwaters of Brexit once more. We've got two of our regulars here today. Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk, has finally woken up from the nap he had to take after leaving London for our live show last week. (gasps) (laughs) <laughs> hello Ian yeah, they really emphasised that shit man and then we get up on stage and they were like hello everyone in Manchester this is Ian Dunn who hates leaving London <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, oh fucking hell lad. like give me a chance um, so did you uh, help did you enjoy Boris Johnson helping out uh, the Yorkshire floods and mopping a shop floor and probably making it all a lot dirtier than it was to be yes it didn't look particularly efficient I mean I'm in no position my mopping skills are fucking suboptimal so I'm in no position to mock <laughs> frankly I'm, uh, yes so I'll, I'll give him a leeway on that one but it didn't necessarily look like the man you want in there to sort of get up get rid of a spillage no um and you're a kind of resident comic book correspondent i think it's fair to say is that true because there's like more than i mean there's andrew who produces it who's just as much of a nerd but somehow puts jokes in the script about how i'm somehow worse than him and then there's dorian who keeps that shit on the down low like very much so but i think i have i have well you're you're the most open about it i think yeah you 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 don't keep a lid on it um so what did you make of momentum's twitter video yesterday and it had the joker telling off batman for not paying his taxes (laughs) What's your view? I liked it quite a bit. I mean, the extent to which I like these videos makes me think this is not something that's going to work for the general public. Right, OK. Yeah, <laughs> but like, yeah. I'm like, not meant to like this. this. Yeah, yeah, but I was like, well, this is actually genuinely quite funny. And it wasn't, you know, usually as soon as you see that kind of setup, you would just think this is going to be like embarrassingly shite. And, and in that case, I was thinking like, actually, I think they've put it together pretty well. Like the script was quite funny. You were getting points across. And you never know. I mean, I don't know. But you never know. It's not impossible that it might galvanise some sort of young voters, make them watch it, yeah. change their minds about it. yeah. Is it an okay look for Labour to identify with the Joker? <laughs> I mean, I, I I suspect you may be reading into it too deeply. <laughs> like, I think they'll get away with it. I thought it was a, it was a pretty good piece of work. Good. Um, finally, does Bruce Wayne pay his tax? Would he like to donate to an independent <coughs> pro-taxable voting pressure group? <laughs> I would have thought Bruce Wayne would be quite tax avoidy, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, you always see him in the comics. He's always at one of those charity galas, you know, the very posh sort of things, which is usually yeah. what gift people aid. Who, who don't pay Can enough tax. Can I gift tax. aid this? Right. Yeah, but it's usually those kind of very posh charity galas, people who don't pay enough tax to still convince themselves that they're not making the world a worse place. Virtue signalers. Quite, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Also with us is Ros Taylor, editor at the LSE Brexit blog and the Open Society Foundation. Uh, Roz, were you impressed by Johnson's mopping skills? Uh, no, but I mean, politicians should never mop. I mean, it's just not their job for a start. It, it looks undignified. Can you imagine Margaret Thatcher mopping a floor? I mean, it would just no. be embarrassing. Or indeed, Harold Macmillan or you know, any of our more successful prime ministers than Boris Johnson or John Major. It would just be silly. And, and, and he thinks he can get away with it and he can't. It's very stupid and politicians politicians should never do menial tasks it is below them it's the first for Romaniacs this week our special guest is from the Daily Telegraph it's Peter Foster <laughs> I'm not sure I like the tone of your voice 
Say that, say that again. Say that again nicely, like like you meant it. Our special guest is from the Daily Telegraph. Good. Better, yes. It's Peter Foster, the paper's formidable Europe editor and a man his own paper describes as very in tune with Brussels. He's a former correspondent in the US, Beijing and the Indian subcontinent, so he's looked at life and politics from every conceivable view. But he's never been in the nest of Romaniacs before, so hello, Peter, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, are you going to get into trouble for, you know, fraternising with the other side and drinking treacherous tea in our Ramona bunker? I think that moment might have passed, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think my, you know, I might have already been outed. Anyway, I'm not a Romaniac. I'm, no, I'm, not. A, I'm a man who voted Remain, uh, who probably would prefer not to have a no deal, yeah. but thinks that probably you have to do some kind of Brexit just ideally not a face plant type yeah. of Brexit. Yeah. So you've long been the voice of reason um, in your paper, um, but the paper arguably has become one of the more enthusiastic pro-Brexit voices. Um, newspapers usually try to sort of balance their objective side with their political campaigning side. Do you think that's something that's much harder in this environment that is so black and white now with Brexit? It's true for all papers, isn't it? The entire media landscape, just like the political landscape is polarized you know mm. uh you know the middle ground is a really tough place uh, to be heard and i think you know everybody uh you know this is a this is an incredibly binary divisive issue and it shows i mean mm. you know the guy you know you, i mean i i might argue that actually you know there's more remain stuff in the telegraph than there is leave stuff in the guardian you know yeah. Yeah. It, you know you, you can actually you know plenty of stuff that i write i often send to people uh, uh, you know, on the email, and that never appeared in the Daily Telegraph. Well, it kind of did, actually. You know, there's lots of, it's a re, it's a broader church than it's yeah. given credit for, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The editorial, uh, 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 you know, the leaders aside, but then all papers are pretty mm. one-eyed on their leaders if mm. they're from one side of the spectrum or the other. Of course. Um, we're getting adverts from the Telegraph now, anyway, on the podcast, so they actually must love our listeners. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure some of our listeners do read the Telegraph. Um, you've written about uh, living with severe pollution, um, and mm. particularly with your family in New Delhi and Beijing. And uh, Is there any kind of comparison between the thick, acrid air of those cities and the, the sort of swamp of current Westminster? I know. Well, I, I, it is, I, am I allowed to roll my eyes when people get really upset about pollution here? Because I know sure. that the statistics say oh, that, well. you know, the statistics are not good. But when you go and live in Beijing or in Delhi, it's an, it's an out-of-body experience. You know, it's like being locked in an ice cream tub mm. um, and the, with the lid never coming off forever. It, mm. it, it really does your head in, actually. You know, and I mean, my kids, when they went to school... They would have a red. Imagine this, right? Being putting this on the campaign tour. They used to go to school, and there'd be a red flag, an amber flag, or a green flag. And if there was a red flag, there was no play outside. An amber flag, there limited. was there was limited yeah. ten minutes, and a green flag you could play. And you know that's that's real politics. You know the mm. Chinese Communist Party dealing with that. You know, mm. so by that token, uh, it's easy it's easy living for these guys. You know. Mm. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. We're going to talk about lots of Brexit-related things coming up. This week, we're going to be discussing the Don't Call It a Pact between Nigel Farage's Brexit party and the Conservatives. The Mr Toad of Leave said he won't feel candidates in seats that the Tories won in 2017 and then turned round and refused to stand down in the marginals that the Tories might win from Labour. So we're going to be discussing what he's playing at and if it's a smart move his cheerleaders really think it is. But, of course, when you're listening to this, we may have found 
found out that he's actually stood down in far more seats than the 317. Um, We're also going to be trying to pin down Labour's ever-changing policy on freedom of movement, and we wonder why the investigations into Russian interference in our democracy and Boris Johnson's interference with Jennifer Akuri have to sit on the shelf until after the election. But first, a few reminders from Roz. Our live show at the Leicester Square Theatre in London on 2nd of December sold out faster than any live show we've ever done. Thank you, Mary. And it, <laughs> and it left a lot of people disappointed that they couldn't get tickets. So we've managed to find one more date in the calendar. It's Tuesday, 17th of December for positively the final Romaniacs Live of 2019. Patreon backers get a first shot at tickets and a discount too, and they're now on general sale at leicestersquaretheatre.com. Mark that date. It's the week after the election, so we'll be looking at what the vote means and where we go from there, and there'll be the usual poor quality Brexit jokes and surprises too. The panel is me, Ian Dunt, Dorian Linsky and Alex Andreu, and we're announcing special guests soon. Plus, if you're worried about presents for friends, family and Brexit-supporting Uncle Ken, the Romaniacs Christmas Market is open again. Search Romaniacs merchandise or follow the links on our Twitter and Facebook pages to see a veritable Barnier's grotto (laughs) of mugs, T-shirts and phone cases for your family or yourself. Our famous Ultra Remainer mugs are now available in Lib Dem and green colours as well as red and blue. Edgy. (laughs) We've got brand new football-based mugs, wait till you see the Spurs one, and our classic Brussels Sprouts range is back for the season. That's leicestersquaretheatre.com for the new live show on Tuesday 17th of December and search Romaniacs merchandise for the Christmas market. Patreon people get a discount on both. Thanks, Roz. Now, Nigel Farage... A stale pint of bitter in human form has announced that he won't be fielding Brexit Party candidates in 317 seats that the Conservatives gained in the election two years ago. This didn't go down well with almost half of the candidates he unveiled only a week ago and who, he says, won't be getting their deposit back. Ian... Um, It's been pointed out by noted bookeater Matthew Goodwin that 35 of the 50 smallest Tory Tory majority uh, seats are in leave seats and there's now no Brexit party rival running against them. Um, How worrying do you think this is for Remain? I think it's quite bad, actually. And sort of the reaction to it went, people being shocked, think it was very bad. Then pretty quickly afterwards, analysts going, well, actually, this probably won't make that much of a difference for the reason that he's still standing in seats where, you know, uh, where there's a Labour MP. So the natural thing to take from it would then be that, okay, fine. So it didn't look like there was much of a Labour surge that would be challenging these Tory-held seats anyway, so we haven't lost much there. And on the other hand, the point where they can really do damage, where they can really take away from the Tory vote, um, he's still standing. However, I remain quite concerned. I mean, firstly, because by the time, you know, someone hears this on Friday, it's perfectly possible he won't be standing in those seats. Even if he is standing um, candidates in those seats, he doesn't have to chuck all of the resources at them necessarily. Then there's something else, and this is the bit that concerns me more, which I think isn't talked about very much, which is more about the air war. It's more about the national conversation. Now, this morning, um, they pulled the Facebook adverts that they were going to put forward against Boris Johnson's deal. Now, this is the thing that suddenly Farage is basically supporting Boris Johnson's deal. And on that basis, we, we have lost someone on the Leave side criticising the deal. So now, essentially, in terms of the whole Brexit alliance, it's really only the DUP that are actually objecting to it. Anything that you'd be getting from Farage directed at Leave voters to to split that, that sense that the deal is a good thing has now been lost. And I think that is quite a loss, actually. 
Mm. And what, what about your view that um, those votes will all automatically transfer over to the Conservatives? There seemed to be quite a bit of chatter, you know, particularly amongst maybe sort of hopeful uh, Labour voices that, well, actually, we, we reckon, you know, a fair chunk of the Brexit Party vote could just, they can never vote Conservative. They're sort of of the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, demographic that have sort of got a visceral hatred of the, the Tory party and elites and perceived elites and that they might come to Labour. Yeah, and I think lots of that can be perfectly true. But the, the relationship of the way those voters think about these two big brands is quite complicated. Mm. And it doesn't work from just that kind of Westminster way of looking at where the politics lines up and thinking people necessarily shift that way because there's a cultural and a psychological relationship there. Mm, mm. Uh, however, whichever way you look at it, you know, as you yourself have pointed out many times, it's the war of the splits, basically. Like, Remain is split in many different directions, although to its advantage, in, in geographical terms, that could be less damaging than it may first appear. And the Leave side was mostly just split down the middle on Brexit Party versus the Tories. So mm. to the extent that the Brexit Party is moving towards that Tory position and getting rid of that split, it can only be a bad thing for the Remain side. Yeah. Ros, what's your view? Do you think Farage's latest news is sort of diminishing the chances of a second referendum, killed it off completely? Other? Um, possibly. I mean, the chances of a second referendum depend on uh, basically Labour or the Lib Dems or, you know, some sort of co- coalition coming to power. So it's factors into that. I think it's worth saying that it is possible that quite a lot of Brexit Party supporters won't actually. Uh, move to the Tories or move to Labour, they may not vote at all. Mm. Because a lot of them have are, are just very, very fed up with politics, are very angry, and they may just say, oh, screw it. They're not, you know, whatever. I, I, I don't identify with either of the main parties, and I certainly don't identify with the Lib Dems, because I can't imagine there are mm. many switches going that way. Um, <laughs> I don't identify with their main parties enough to vote for either of mm. them. So mm. I think there will be a kind of big dropout rate, as it were. We don't have a yardstick for this other than, I suppose, 2017 when UKIP stood down in over 100 seats for the Conservatives and UKIP isn't the Brexit party and UKIP then wasn't led by Nigel Farage, Mm. but less than 50% of their vote actually transferred to the Conservatives, um, which helped to deny Theresa May a majority. Um, And I think within that, there was, as you say, a substantial chunk that actually just didn't vote. There's also the thought that if it starts, if Johnson's momentum starts to grow, what is the point of a vote for the Brexit party if you are going to get some kind of Brexit? You've got to be a, you know, if, if, as um, Ian says, Farage is effectively supporting Johnson's deal now. What does a Brexit party offer you if you've got Brexit? And what is the point of electing those MPs who are going to sit in Parliament potentially for five years just thinking only about Brexit? Now, they have got some other policies. Um, We had a piece on LSE Brexit last week about uh, their various other policies, which include free Wi-Fi on buses that aren't in London and abolishing the House of Lords and stuff like that. But they're probably not... probably not widely known. They're also quite into recycling. Um, they're, they're probably not widely known and they may not uh, have much reach. Sure. Peter, to what extent are the EU think, you know, do you think they're gaming out the various different scenarios of massive Tory majority, slim Tory majority, Labour minority government? They are. I think the EU side, in, you know, there's a lot of kidology and, of course, Boris caved pretty hard at the end of the negotiation uh, uh, in in uh, just gone, um, but I think the EU side, um, and you know what do you mean by that? But in official Brussels, there is a doubt that Johnson will have the space, political space, to uh, extend the transition and do a 
um, a reasonably, you know, extended uh, exit. You know, he's going to have to have a negotiation about mm. the money um, almost immediately. You know, the, if you're going to extend the transition, it needs to be done by July. Yeah. Yeah. It will be probably more than the ten billion uh, pounds a year net we're playing now uh, for the next two years. Can Johnson do that? You know, having just gone, whoa, freedom, we've passed the withdrawal agreement bill in, in January. Can he really then go, but by the way, we still need to keep paying them 10, mm. 15 billion pounds a year to keep talking? It's going to be tough, you know. Mm. On the other hand, if Johnson has a majority, I saw David Gork's been saying, you know, well, he won't be able to have any move, room to move. All the, all the ERG were putting letters into the 22 committee if Boris tries to go soft. Well, actually, will they really? Where, where do they have to go? If Johnson's got a majority, he's got five years ahead of him. Mm. You know, not to extend that transition period, you know, people will be coming to him going, well, Prime Minister, you cannot extend the transition. But if we go on to WTO terms with no period for business to adjust to the paperwork they're going to have to do at the border, to all the veterinary checks, yeah. to the VAT regimes, etc. If you're going to do that, then if you want to think, get Brexit done, if your mantra is get Brexit off the front pages, nothing is going to guarantee that we're all going to be sat here talking <laughs> Talk about, about Brexit this time that. next year Indeed. than a face plant WTO rule uh, exit at mm. the end of next year. So I, and I have no inside information whatsoever on this, but my gut says that uh, Johnson will be softer than people think. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Listen up, Nigel. Um, Ian, um, Best of Britain's tactical vote site, getvoting.org, isn't using um, 2017 vote share as much of an indication of, uh, you know, how, how people should be voting this time because the country has changed so much. But it appears that Farage is in his assessment of where he ought to be standing down. Um, do you reckon he knows something that the rest of us don't? I love this BBC version of you. I mean, I don't know. I'm, of course, you, you, of course, have no opinions on this matter. And other sure. tactical voting sites are not available. <laughs> <laughs> um, With a data set of 46,000, sample right, size, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. No, I mean, I, you know, it, it does not seem sensible to me to base everything on 2017. It's not a particularly sensible way to proceed. We have new information since then. Not all this information is reliable. Things are extremely volatile. They're extremely weird. They're extremely complicated. 2017 should be part of the assessment, but absolutely should not be the basis upon which you make all of these assessments. Mm. And what about all these um, very... I mean, I think... I, I want to say there's these scores of Brexit Party candidates that are, are very angry about not getting their money back for all the deposits they've been put down, mm. but it strikes me that these are people that are angry all the time anyway. Um, well, lots of them are anyway. Um, but is this a good look to put in front of the Brexit base? This sort of no, warring I, internal... No, of course not. Also, I mean, they're kind of right to be angry, aren't they? I mean, like, they've chucked in a bunch of money, a bunch of time. They gave their conviction, their beliefs to this guy. He, he does a speech, what, a few fucking days ago, where he's like, oh, the deal's appalling, couldn't possibly ever vote for this deal. Then days later, it's like... Oh, Boris Johnson has stepped down in an imaginary move towards Canada. Fuck knows what. You sort of think, like, I mean, come on, none of this makes any sense. The language which, on this podcast is appalling. appalling. It's very, very bad. You should have been warned, frankly. Sorry. Um, which, of course, then leads you to this extraordinary sight. So you look um, this morning, and finally, finally, like the, the the snake actually eats its own tail. Where you get these black and white photos of Nigel Farage with the words "traitor" underneath it. And you think, of course, the Jacobin Rebellion comes home. Like you knew. You always knew for the last three years, one day it will be him. And this yeah. morning you wake up and it's like, today's the fucking day. Um, Roz, the Lib Dems are coming under a lot of criticism at the moment uh, for how vociferously anti-Labour Joe Swinson's 
messaging and rhetoric has been and it all seems to have come to a particular head over the seat of Canterbury where sitting Labour MP and avid Remainer Rosie Duffield um, is running and the uh, Lib Dem PPC has pulled out but the the, the party seemed to be wanting to refill um, his shoes before the close of nominations uh, tomorrow. Is it is it time now for the Lib Dems to soften on Labour? I don't think it would do them much good to soften on Labour, to be honest. I think they would be depriving themselves of a lot of their voters if they do, because a lot of Lib Dems vote Lib Dem because they are very anti-Corbyn, and that is why she is going down that road. I mean, yeah, uh, I would personally like to see a situation where they were a bit more tactical and they were, were not standing so much against Labour, where the Labour candidate is avidly and ardently pro-Remain. But that is not the case in Canterbury. Rosie Duffield is very uh, pro-Remain and very upfront about that. Mm. So it's a very difficult decision that Swinson has had to make. But make. But to be fair to her, unlike Vince Cable, I think she's she's not interested in sitting on the fence. She's trying to be very decisive and show how decisive she's going to be when she becomes prime minister. Um, and <laughs> and this stance of anti anti Corbynism and anti Corbyn is very much of a piece with that. And I don't, as I say, think she would gain much by abandoning it. You can almost see it now, can't you? Like the meeting in Lib Dem HQ where they were just like. You cannot allow under any circumstances it to look like there's even the teensiest bit of cooperation with Corbyn. Like even in the smallest, the most unlikely seat, just never, ever let it look like there's even a glimmer of cooperation there because it will fucking kill you with those voters. It, clearly, that conversation I mean, you know, I mean, Corbyn's numbers, right? Corbyn is negative 60. <laughs> no, just, 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 just stop. And pre- he is negative sixty. The latest Ipsos number. I mean, that is not subterranean. I mean, that's the other side of the world. <laughs> negative sixty, right? Yeah, if yeah. if the Remain combine loses, it'll be because of Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. He is he is just stratospherically unpopular. And if you are, because I've got all this MRP data, um, which is seat by seat, and in the Libcon marginals, there are just so many where the Labour vote has collapsed sub. You know, into low single digits. So there's not enough of a Labour vote left for the Lib Dems to squeeze. So they have to squeeze the, to- the Tory Remainers over mm-hmm. to them if they've got any chance. And of course, the thing. So we're in this. We're in this really odd situation in the campaign. We've got to very, very finely calibrate as Remainers. Um, Labour doing well enough so that we can form a coalition that is or a supply and confidence arrangement that, that pushes through a new referendum. But we can't have Labour surge so much that those Tory Remainers are too panicked to vote Lib Dem because they think it delivers a majority for mm. for, for for Corbyn. So they then retreat back to Conservatives. So it's an incredibly difficult one to call. Okay. Um, anyway, That's really let... interesting. You should be maybe like a panellist on this thing and not a host. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you can anchor in. Just briefly, can I ask are we expecting the Brexit party to be able to win any seats, according to your projections? No, not current ones, but um, they were on the July and August MRP that I did, but they they had lost all of that back uh, mm-hmm. to the Conservatives once Boris Johnson got a deal. OK, so we're not we're not thinking about a Brexit party Tory coalition. It is not beyond the realms of possibility. Um, and last week, I think I mentioned Dorian was really pressing me on this and mm. said if Farage was going to stand anywhere, where would you think mm. he ought to, based on the data and Thorak is the, is the obvious yeah. place and there are a few other ones to watch, but uh, it's unlikely at this stage. Thank God. What really makes government work? And why do things go wrong? What's really going on in the engine room of policy? 
Every week in Inside Briefing from the Institute for Government, we look at who and what determines the way that we are governed. You don't just leave a pot of money on the side of the road for businesses to pick up. Three and a half years after the referendum, six months after we were supposed to have left, every single option is on the table. We're obviously in a very odd time where things can change in a matter of minutes. You can get Inside Briefing from the Institute for Government every week on your favourite podcast app. Elsewhere, the battle lines are being drawn over what immigration policy Labour will be putting in their manifesto. Campaign chief Andrew Gwynne has said they're seeking reciprocal agreements with the EU that will allow British citizens to enjoy some of the freedoms that they will lose as a result of Brexit. Um, Ian, uh, Labour sort of seem to be admitting that Brexit will happen, but they want to keep the benefits of freedom of movement, which, as we all know, is only really possible inside the EU or, you know, an incredibly close relationship uh, with them. Is there anywhere that Labour aren't sitting on the fence, in your view? Yeah, I don't. I mean, look, you can you can have it as long as you're in the single market. I mean, basically, it's, it's a condition of the single market. So Norway, you know, for instance, obviously outside yep. of the EU, has freedom of movement, and that opens up an awful lot of opportunities in terms of like the the sort of intimacy of your economic relationship and your trading relationship. Um, I, I think it is obviously sitting on the fence on, on the freedom of movement issue. I think it has to talk as if Brexit is going to happen just by virtue of what its policy is, because its policy is we're going to negotiate a deal and then put it to the people. That's the thing. And so by virtue of that, you still need to say, well, that you need to act as if it is going to happen. So I wouldn't, I would try, I would urge people not to get sort of too upset about it. Mm. And, and the reality is when they sit there, I think when you sort of decode the things that Keir Starmer has said over the last few years, it's pretty clear that he wants an EEA sort of thing, some kind of bespoke model for that. There won't be too many details of it in the six months that they go in, but they will basically say, look, will we do, you know, we would be accepting these things, things like ECJ jurisdiction, you know, and I think freedom of movement. When they say controls, I wonder whether they don't mean some of the domestic controls that you can adopt within freedom of movement. So, you know, the three-month rule for which we need to go, or even... All those things that David Cameron could have done but didn't do because exactly, he some exactly. retail proposition from the EU. Right, I, exactly. But we, are, but we are where we are. And I think there's also... Occasionally you listen to him and you, he, he might be trying to just sort of rewrap the Swiss policy around um, local job um, adverts before they go out. Mm. You know, to certain level. So there's lots of bits that they can try and put together, some of them real, some of them not real, that could be the sort of like, look, we've done controls here, but you know, freedom movement is sort of happening as a mm. whisper on the side. Mm. Mm. Ros, uh, Labour are often very good at talking about the workplace rights, but I think sometimes as Remainers we even forget to explain the fact that it, it, we have the right to live and work and study and love and all the rest of it in, in all of these other EU countries. Do you think that that's something that Labour recognises or has maybe forgotten to talk about? Well, I think it doesn't want to talk about it. Um, yeah, uh, it would be great to see Labour embracing that idea more strongly. I mean, given how un how low unemployment is in this country and how high it is in a number of other EU countries, it is extraordinary that there's still this focus on it because unemployment is, in many people's minds, mm. the measure of is, is immigration too high? Are people taking my jobs? Whether mm. or not the relationship is, is that simple is open to question. Um, but yeah, I'm really worried. I'm, I'm really sad that uh, in this campaign that Labour have not taken the opportunity, as Ian said, to um, make it clear that it is possible to 
effectively limit mm. freedom of movement within um, within the purview of, of the EU, mm. that you there are things you can do which Cameron and Blair chose not to do, um, and May too, uh, chose not to do in order to effectively restrict the number of people who can live I'm in this country. I'm going to say quite a telegraph, telegraphian thing here, right, which is that... Which is that one of the troubles with Norway is that we are not Norway, right? So the EEA block doesn't want us in there. And when we remember Norway for now, that was a new thing. And then when everyone went started to actually look at the demands that the EU would put on us, because oh, yeah. Norway does essentially what it's told, right? Yes. But the, the relationship in Rule the EEA her. treaty is quite loose because basically Norway can't afford to upset the EU. So it follows the line. And when it tries to, for example, the postal directive, it tries to fight against it. It realises that it's a no-win situation. Mm-hmm. So, so that creates a world where essentially Norway, for us, accepting free movement, we really are absolutely handcuffed to the EU with no seat at the table. Mm-hmm. Politically, I think that's completely unsustainable. I agree. So, so then you get into Brexit, right? And you look at what happened with free movement and the argue, one of the, so the arguments for Brexit is you start to restructure UK labour markets. Why do we need to import so much labour? Mm. You know, is there an argument for actually training more nurses, more uh, uh, UK doctors? You'd have to do it over time, but actually the labour market case, because the, one of the reasons why wages get so low is because international the internationalization of labor markets allows companies to undermine them so part of the political discussion of brexit if brexit is going to happen is actually what are the costs of restructuring our labor markets and that ought to be part of the conversation and it's not binary and we ought to be doing both in my opinion but <laughs> while we're sort of talking about labor and their um, position on immigration obviously the other big labor story this week was tom watson um deputy leader is now saying that he is stepping down from parliament um he is not going to restand um He's been probably Labour's most senior advocate of um, a final say referendum. Ros, has he sort of abandoned those Labour moderates now? Has he sort of left them up shit creek? Yeah, he has, but they should have seen the way things were going. I mean, it, it, to rely on Tom Watson uh, to hopefully, you know, reverse the Corbyn takeover of the Labour Party would be very foolish. It has been a, you know, a gradual increase of Corbyn's power from the NEC and so on and other mechanisms of power within the party. And if you, yeah, if you were relying on Tom Watson, you were foolish. Um, Ian, what do you think his plan is? Do you know him? Has he told you about his fitness DVDs going to happen. I'm unaware. I mean, that, to be honest, the fitness accomplishments of that man are actually quite impressive. They are. So, he <laughs> no, is literally I, half I, I the man he was. He is indeed half the man that he was. Um, and I will mostly miss, like during PMQs on the front bench, his face is like an HBO box set in its own right. Like there's just a lot going on in that man's face. He's like staring at stuff. You're like, oh, fucking hell, that was some death look that you just had. And he's like, oh, and now a moment of levity. <laughs> and now the death look is back. And I, I will miss that shit. I genuinely will. Um, I still think it was shocking that he went. He didn't give any... The impression was not... You know, the impression was steady as a rock. You know, remember when... At say, conference, like, they tried to get rid of his role. There was the whole right. um, momentum move to maybe... Well, well, yeah, it was John Landsman that was sort of trying to get rid of the deputy role and there was this sort of huge backlash against it and it was so much linked to Tom as an individual. And there was that... I mean, there, there is a bit of a, a feeling of being let down, I think, in the... If you remember when Luciana Berger left, for instance, that day... You know, lots of other people, but that was obviously the bit that struck hardest because it was like a Jewish woman is leaving Labour because she's no longer comfortable. Like, you know, just take a fucking minute and think about what that entails. He was the one that did a video, which is one of the only videos that looked like it had any emotional intelligence to it from the Labour side of being like, look, this is bleak. This is bad. But don't go. Don't go because this is the party that we need to change from the inside. And 
and now he's going. Mm. <laughs> so, I mean, I know he's not leaving the party, but, you know, he's, he's leaving as a power centre. And that is quite startling, I think. OK, so rapid, quick fire round with him out of the picture. If Corbyn goes uh, after an election, who who's your money on to be next Labour leader, Ros? Oh, uh, difficult question. Um, what, uh, are you looking for the answer I'd like to give or the answer that I think is most likely? <laughs> you can give us both if you like. Well, I'd like to see Hilary Benn or uh, Keir Starmer st- uh, step up or um, Chess Phillips, ideally. She might be my dream candidate. I'd rather not get into who probably will take over because that will depress me too much. OK, Peter? <laughs> I don't, I'm not really qualified to answer that question. I, I, I would just only observe that we spent a lot of time focused on the obvious fratricidal Tory splits over Europe and Brexit, which has just obscured the fact that actually Labour, okay. on a purely numerical basis, is more split actually down the middle than the Tories are on Brexit. You know, the Tories, yes, there was a soft one-nation remain wing, but it was never exactly pro-Europe. And and you, and so, you know, the choice of leader, it seems to me, is existential and pretty binary for the Labour Party. Mm. Ian, do you want to take a punt? Who do you think it'll be? If it's a real trouncing, there'll be a... Paradoxically, there'll actually be a chance for more moderate figures, I think, like, like Keir Starmer and all of that. If, if it isn't, then... And he does change, it'll probably be someone that's more loyal to him. <laughs> Now, report. What report? The Independent (laughs) Office for Police Conduct will not say whether it'll investigate Boris Johnson's alleged misconduct with Jennifer R. Curie until after December the 12th. And the parliamentary report into possible Russian interference in UK politics also won't be published until after the election, much to the fury of Dominic Grieve. Hillary Clinton has called the decision on Russia damaging and shaming. The Arcuri investigation is certainly puzzling at best. Roz, um, don't we deserve to know all of this stuff before we go to the polls? Yeah, of course we do. It totally stinks. Um, it's disgusting. The ISC report in particular is uh, that there's no reason not to release... Well, there is every reason in Boris Johnson's view. But the fact that he signs off on it at all is wrong. The, ex- uh, the executive should not have that much power over Parliament. I mean, the report is already heavily redacted. I've read the, these ISC reports and in the past, and they're always full of black you know, mm. redactions. It's already taken months to approve by uh, by the intelligence and security services, and there is no reason whatsoever for him to hold it back except self-interest. Ian, um, those Brexiteers who were sort of shouting about politicisation and the judiciary after Lady Hale's ruling have all gone quite quiet now. Um, does Dominic Grieve have a point when he says that the Russia report should be released? Yeah, yeah, of course it should be released. and It should be released now and it's, it's obviously been kept back because of the election. I don't think, by the way, just for people getting excited, it's, it's, this report is not going to say that Brexit is happening because during the referendum, Vladimir Putin, you know, flew over and started chucking out a bunch of Facebook adverts. That is not why Brexit is happening. And, and then the, there is this temptation among, I think, a lot of Remainers just to, to try and just find the villain, find an easy solution for this stuff, which is, in fact, based on a lot of very complicated things. But ultimately, the fact that lots of people thought this country isn't working out well enough for me and that that's a much harder question to answer. And that's the one you have to grapple with. What I suspect might be in that report is that pretty senior and especially very wealthy Russians with some links to the Russian state are clearly holding relationships with the Tory party, with individual Tories and partly using the process by which you donate for certain things, for instance, like a tennis match with Boris Johnson. Anyone that's willing to pay tens of thousands of pounds to play tennis with Boris Johnson needs their fucking head examined. Or 
they're doing it for the Russian state, <laughs> you know, which is the other option. And that, I think, is where the embarrassment comes because of how yeah. vulnerable to Russian influence the Tory party has made itself through its donation yes, procedures yes. and socially, rather than anything to do with the referendum. Yeah, yeah. So, Ros, what do we know about the extent of Russian, Russian meddling in... in British votes? Not a lot for certain. I mean, there was a big DCMS uh, Culture, Media and Sport Committee report that said that Russia had engaged in unconventional warfare during the campaign. Depends how you define war, uh, warfare. And the US Senate Minority Committee has also said that uh, Britain has been the victim of Russian meddling. The question I ask myself, uh, while not uh, while agreeing with Ian that you don't want to blame everything on Russia, is if it wasn't useful and if it wasn't getting them anywhere, why would they do it? Mm. Um, they do it because they know that it will get results and that it's fucking with our politics, excuse me, my descent into uh, language there. And <laughs> that's what they want to see happen. And Brexit is not necessarily the only desirable outcome in their in their worldview. There are lots of other things that they would like to see happen. Peter, um, investigations like the Russia one have a habit of poisoning political environments. Is it better to get them out and dealt with or does it just make you look guilty? Yeah, probably. Uh, you know, there's a lot of Russian money in the property market. There's a lot of Russian money in the city. Mm. You know, there's lots of Ru- Russian money sloshing around everywhere. Um, are Do all parties have problem with big political donors looking grubby? Yes. Would they make a massive difference to the end result in the polls? Probably not. You know, same with the Arcuri stuff. You know, um, I imagine a lot of that stuff with Boris Johnson is pretty much priced in. So, I, you know, maybe it's too late for them to go back on it now. Does it make a huge difference in the end of the day? I don't think it probably does. We're going to do a bit on mine and Chuka Amuna's predecessor as Liberal candidate for the City of <laughs> Westminster, John Stuart Mill. <laughs> Welcome to the age of epistocracy. Is that right? That's right. It's not episiotomy. That's very different. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I pronounce it. Okay. okay. No, you pronounced it fine. Lindsay McGoey of Essex University and guesting on Ros's Parish over at LSE Brexit has written about how Brexit and Trump have led to the resurgence of this concept of epistocracy, that only people with the right knowledge should be allowed to cast a vote. Ros, what on earth is this all about? Well... It's particularly interesting at the moment because there are various people who are invoking the concept of epistocracy in support um, uh, in uh, support of their views about Brexit. And what they are saying is that if we had a more educated um, voter pool, if only more educated people could vote, then Brexit and possibly Trump and so on might not have happened. And so they're kind of parlaying Brexit into their argument. And Lindsay McGoey is quite angry about this. Um, And she's, I think, rightly saying that you cannot um, run a democracy based on who can pass a fairly arbitrary test because it would have to be a sort of voter competence test of some sort um, of their knowledge. That is not the way to run democracy. It may have been how things were done in the glory days of Rome, you know, uh, Boris Johnson's heaven, but it is not how we should do things now. Um, Ian, where does John Stuart Mill fit into all of this? Well, he did dabble with the stuff. Um, and I mean, for a start, he was wrong about lots of things. With that. I mean, he was against the secret ballot for a start. Um, but to give him some sort of sympathy, you're, you're at this point where the demands for the franchise are growing and growing and growing. And there's a lot of liberal figures who've supported democracy, as John Stuart Mill and his wife Harriet Taylor have done, who were sort of faced with this problem of the fact that actually lots of people had almost no education whatsoever and they had to address that kind of problem. They also had a problem with just this... Like, them, a serious concern was the tyranny of the majority, of just this idea of like, OK, 
well, we've just about established individual rights through about sort of 100 or 200 years of, of campaigning for it. What happens if we just give everyone these votes? This, this was part of the quite febrile intellectual atmosphere around this stuff. And he was at certain points flirted with certain ideas around a sort of education threshold before voting that you would gradually wean down as you'd introduced more free schooling for the working class. and things. So it's a pretty standard Victorian debate, which if you just extract it and put it into us right now, it's like, well, this is not particularly helpful or representative. Great. Now it's time for Gone in 60 Seconds, where one of our panellists has a single minute to take down and demolish a key lever argument. Think of it like Roger Bannister running that four-minute mile, but with logic and in only one minute. This week, it's the turn of Roz. Are you ready? Your argument is the damage to our politics of not delivering Brexit would be far greater than any damage caused by Brexit itself, and that's why we have to do it. Your 60 seconds start now. First of all, only anarchists say their preferences have to be carried out at any cost. And there has never been any agreement among Brexiteers on what Brexit actually means in the single market, the customs union, out with a deal, no deal. And so that means there's no way to settle on the amount of damage Brexit would do. What people making this argument really mean is that people would lose trust in politics and the ability of their vote to make any difference in the world. And that is a valid concern. But in politics, you build trust by explaining what you're going to do why you need to do it, how much it will cost. That's what white paper does, basically. And only then do you do it. And Brexiters have never fulfilled their side of the bargain by giving decent answers to the first three. Instead, they've lied and shifted positions and destroying the trust in politics that they say is so important. And to a lot of people, Brexit has become an end in itself, something we have to do so we can start doing better and more interesting things. But it isn't. It's a pointless distraction from the things that really matter. And if we don't do those, people really start losing trust in politics. Boom! 58, 58 seconds. I think that's the fastest yet. Yes. <laughs> anyone Is anyone starting to feel that when we do these things, all anyone's paying attention to is the fucking time? <laughs> <laughs> like, we're just getting to this point now. Maybe... <laughs> Like the omelette cooking thing on that Saturday morning cooking show. But that was, I found that very interesting and incredibly oh, useful. Great. I'm yeah. going to mm. use a lot of that in our campaigning. Mm. You've heard him throughout the show. Our guest this week is Peter Foster, the Telegraph's Europe editor. Peter, you've said you always believed that Brexit needs to happen, but your own coverage of it has been to show how badly and possibly terminally badly it's been handled. Um, so, why does it need to happen? Does it still need to happen? Um, has the mandate potentially expired with three and a half years on blimey loads of questions there um does it still need to happen um i think until you see a significant shift in opinion i think it does for the simple re my, my simple reasoning is this i voted remain as everybody knows um is that imagine if the result had gone the other way imagine if it had been 48 52 leave Sorry, remain, right? And everyone was sitting there saying we need to have another referendum because, you know, we need to have another go. All the people, you know, your listeners and you guys would all be up in upper in, in There'd upper be a podcast called Leviax. Right, you know, so, so I just think, <laughs> I just think at a, ba a basic <laughs> level um, that needs to happen. Now, there is an argument, at least, you know, constitutionally, there is an argument for saying, you know, which is what the Swiss do. We have a referendum On to everything. do something. And then we have a referendum. So now, we, now we've looked at it thoroughly. Um you know, do we really wish? Do we really wish to go ahead with that? I think the kind of weakness of that argument, which I would have been persuaded by if it was a choice between 
deal between that and no deal. I think no deal is entirely reckless and irresponsible and witless. And therefore, um, you know, I've always been clear that if it came down to a no deal, then I think a, a second referendum is, 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 is preferable. But if you're going to have a second referendum on a deal, then, you know, you look at the, the extent to which people actually understand and have time and energy to really grapple with what it means, you end up with the same problem, which is that referendums, you know, give you questions, give you answers you didn't didn't want to questions you didn't ask. You know, they just become, you know, another way, another it just becomes another cultural mm-hmm. fight. I think Brexit probably still needs to happen. Uh, and I trust that in the fullness of time, gravity will take over. Mm. Um, and that actually, you know, half our trade goes to Europe uh, and that in the fullness of time, 10 years from now, we probably will have established a reasonably close relationship with Europe uh, because they're on our doorstep. They're our neighbours. They're where our trade goes. Uh, and therefore, you know, gravity, both politically and in terms of economic models, means that the really hard Brexit that is being talked about at the moment is probably something, in my mind, that lives in the imaginations of of uh, uh, the very hard Brexiteers, for which there isn't really a consensus. And isn't that the problem now, then, that we've got a general election around a single question, which really ought to be a referendum? Because if you're if you're only asking one question, you should arguably not do that through a general election. And because of the first-past-the-post system, you're, you're, you're going to potentially return a majority government on a minority view on the issue of Brexit, that that you're going to have a you know more than fifty percent of the MPs that hold this much more sort of zealot view of Brexit. I mean, listen, when you mix representative and direct democracy, when you mix referendums and and uh, uh, and, uh, and and parliamentary democracy, you get in a mess. Yeah. And we are in a mess. You know, would we be better off by having another referendum that didn't give you a very clear, clear cut result? You know, best of three. Mm. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure that actually another referendum. I'd argue another referendum makes it even more complicated. We are a parliamentary democracy. You know, Parliament is blocked and stuck. The right thing to do is to have a. Uh, have a general election. It may not unstick everything, but nonetheless, that's the system that we have. Um, the real problem with Brexit is that we, we've we never really sat down and worked out what we want. Even now, um, people have not fully internalised what uh, a WTO Brexit is. You know, th- this idea that John- Boris Johnson is running around the country saying, vote for me and get Brexit done... You know, Brexit is just beginning. Mm. We've done the divorce deal. We've settled the bar tab, and we've we've agreed not to uh, not to be not to be mean to the neighbours. Uh, you know, that live down the street. That's it. Mm. So so, you know, I don't think. Uh, I, you know, but it is going to be a long process, and each cycle that we go through, that is based on the politicians not levelling with the public about the choices that confront them it will get harder and harder, as we've seen, you know, and actually the kind of climb downs get more and more precipitous more and more quickly. But, you know, that's the, you know, no quick fixes. It goes on a bumper sticker, but it doesn't win you an election. And and, and I, you know, I just think it's going to be a long and grinding process. How long does that go on for, though? Because, I mean, you, you have the election result, you have the 2016 result. Then you have, you know, government after government has really not been clear with the public about what it's proposing or what it would cost or any of the trade-offs involved or even the, the micro sort of details you have election after election quite possibly you're going to end up with another hung parliament this time like how long can we keep on accepting that mandate without seeking 
a new one on it in the form of another referendum, given that the government has all of this executive power by virtue of interpreting it in whichever way it wants and without being straight with people? Well, the, the trouble is you don't get to try before you buy in Brexit, right? So once that, once that legal guillotine's come down, what are you going to have a referendum on? Returning? You're going to join an accession process? Joining the euro? This country's never going back to Europe once we leave. I, you know, certainly not in... Oh, not, yeah, you don't think so? Not, no, I, no. I mean, so you look, at, look at the Swiss, right? They voted, I think, by about 0.4% not mm-hmm. to join the EEA. And then when they had a decade later had a referendum about joining Europe, they voted, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but 80-20 not to join. You know, we spent the last three years losing, right? A £65 million gorilla against a £460 million gorilla, right? When we get in this trade negotiation, right, we're going to spend the next two, three, four, five years basically being acquainted with our relative clout Um, against the EU. And if you think, I mean, for one, do not think that leads to a point where everyone goes... Mercy me, let's try and rejoin the European Union. On the contrary, I suspect we end up much more like the Swiss, 80-20 against, but with a constant... I mean, this joint committee that's going to run, um, that's going to run the, the, the UK, you know, it will be a constantly frictional uh, relationship, I think. But it will settle down over time because it's in kind of both of our interests that it does, but it will take time. And I, do, I mean, that's my view, is that we were, we were on an attritional path of divergence, assuming Brexit happens, um, and that we will reach a stable, stable, stable equilibrium, but it will take five or ten years. And and how do they view us at the moment? You, you speak to a lot of people in Europe. What's your read on how they see us at the moment and, you know, in, in terms of all of these future relationships or maybe going back in? You know, do they just see us as people that are, are, are mad? Listen, listen. They have there's lots of populism in Europe. You know, look at what's going on in Spain, in Italy. Uh, uh, you know, uh, um, look at the state of Germany's uh, Grand Coalition. You know, but the leaders around the table at the European Council, they know that you know um, Britain is not alone in having issues with fragmentation and polarization uh, in their democracy. Our trouble is. We funneled it into this thing called Brexit, right? Which is the, which is this box that can't be fixed. And that's why you know, go back to the divorce deal. You either did an all UK Brexit deal that Theresa May did that didn't really feel very much like Brexit, or you did the deal that Boris has done, which is a deal that splits the United Kingdom, leaves Northern Ireland in the in the orbit of a foreign uh, uh, trading block, and opens a door to a very hard Brexit that can only damage us economically. And the trouble politically, I think, for Boris Johnson, who wants this all to go away, really, I, you know, I think if you listen to Boris Johnson's campaign materials all the way, he wants to get on with being prime minister. He wants to get on with fixing the NHS. Genuinely, I think, you know, he doesn't, he's not, an, I don't think he was ever an ideological Brexiteer. The trouble you have is, even if, sake of argument, uh, and by the way, this is not, not the what the economic models tell you, but even if sake of argument Britain diverging strongly from the European Union was going to pay us a dividend. It would never pay us that dividend immediately, right? So you suck up the pain of a hard Brexit for long-term trading advantages. But in our political cycles, those long-term advantages don't come... You know, Boris Johnson... <laughs> Someone else will get them Right, yeah. right. You know, so that is really difficult. So whilst we've got 100% veterinary checks at the border and queues Dover-Calais and companies not investing in the UK and closing their car plants, etc., uh, you know, and, and saying, well, 
you know, you've erected barriers to trade with Europe that equate to 8, 9, 10, 12, 15% on these products. And then we're going to be laying people off. We're going to be uh, reorienting, paying our taxes in Europe, establishing in Europe. Whilst you're going through that pain, all you can do is stand there and go, it'll be all right in five mm-hmm. or 10 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the problem. That's why I think, you know, this is the, one of the difficulties of the next phase of Brexit is that it gets quite binary quite quickly. If you want trade negotiating competences, you're going to have to do a hard Brexit. So, for example, if you want a veterinary agreement, right, between us and the to reduce the number of checks, not 100% checks at the board of veterinary, but do a New Zealand style board, bring it down to 10, 15, 20. Once you've done that deal, what do you do when you go to the United States and they want to send you chlorinated chicken and hormone-raised beef, right? Yeah. It's a kind of either... Or, would the EU give us that deal, that veterinary agreement? Without a lock on... W- without a lock. And, and if they did, then you're going to the... And mm. then you're going back to America. And once you've done that deal with the America, bang, the wall comes down again. Mm. And so, you know, th- this is the... This is the difficulty, I think, about, you know, it'll all go away... We'll smooth it. We'll smooth it all over. It's going to be quite hard to do that. Um, Caroline Fairburn at the CBI um, was in the FT earlier this week, describing the consequences of a Johnson majority. And you said they would be very grim for for Britain and for business. Um, now that we're trying to conv- not, not that we're trying to convert you over to the Romaniac uh, end of things, but um, is this something a, a newspaper can honestly back? You know, going against business. Well, this is the this is the difficulty. You know, when you get into the weeds of this argument, you then start to say, well, it, you know, Brexit wasn't just about uh, wasn't just about uh, economy, right? It wasn't just about about business. Um, and so, insofar as I've ever openly backed anything, it was Theresa May's deal, which seemed to me to be a fifty two forty eight kind of Brexit, right? It protected supply chains, it protected the union, it did provide a measure of autonomy. We could have done services agreements with other countries. We would have had control over free movement. It did deliver on it seemed it sent to me in a meaningful but marginal way on a marginal vote. I think the difficulty is with um with 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 the Johnson deal, the Johnson deal could mean anything. Let's be clear. The Northern Ireland only solution that he's come up with opens the door to a very hard Brexit. It doesn't have to mean a very hard Brexit because it hasn't been defined. If he gets a majority and the withdrawal agreement goes over, then we will have to come up with a trade negotiating mm. mandate, right? That will be the next fight, defining what it means. And then, I mean, I I, I did a, a, a Twitter thread about Carolyn Fairburn's interview because then business, I think, will find itself in a different position. To date, business has been reluctant to get stuck into the political debate because everyone's divided. Their consumers are divided. Their investors are divided. Their boards are divided. And so it gets difficult... Oh. To their staff, their workers. It gets hard to take sides because you get accused of trying to stop Brexit. Once Brexit's happened, as I say, once that legal guillotine has come down, then I think maybe we get into a more fact-based conversation because, you know, let, you know let, let's say we're going to go and do... We're going to be outside the EU's VAT regime, right? Why? What's the point about being outside the EU's VAT regime? Does it allow you to go buccaneering and do trade deals? No, actually, it doesn't really have any bearing on that at all. But companies that are trading into Europe are going to have to pay VAT at the border in a lot of EU countries, the ones that don't have back deferral deferral payment schemes, including, I think, Germany. So companies will then get into the kind of weeds of, well, if you do that... I'm going to have to hire this many more people. I'm going to have to, you know, put this much more frictional cost 
on my business. And when you get into that, how do businesses remain competitive? Well, some of them can find new markets, mm. but not the point about advanced markets on your doorstep is it's trading with advanced markets that keeps your business productive and competitive. And our business is not productive and competitive enough as it is. Mm. Sending widgets to India doesn't help in that regard. And so this is where I think it'll be attritional is that once the costs start to imposed and you know how do you how do you keep competitive well one way is kind of labor mm. cost devaluation right that's suppressing wages well i don't think there's a great political mandate for that so if you know Boris well, the Johnson, reason why people voted leave <laughs> well, precisely you know but again you know people voted leave for lots of reasons that weren't you know our political class for the last mm. 20 or 30 years have been attributing uh, their woes to Europe. I mean, take David Cameron, he did his negotiation, right? He didn't take up all of the, uh, some of the things we've mentioned that Austria, for example, does about if you don't have a job, you have to leave in free movement. He focused, because he knew he couldn't get a concession on free movement, on the rights of Poles and other EU workers repatriating their child benefit back mm. home. Do you know how much in actual, total actual figures goes back to the EU? for repatriated benefits, it's 20 million quid. I mean, it's just... We had that whole negotiation, the four-year gradated benefits break for the re yeah, yeah, yeah. over 20, 20 million, million quid. Mm. I mean, it's nuts. It's, it, it's, you know, this is, but this is what I say about a fact-based conversation yeah. about reality. Yeah. You know? um, well, I, yeah. yeah, I mean... Remainers do love facts uh, to our own detriment when we're campaigning. <laughs> um, but but the, the the final fact I'd like uh, to press you on, which is definitely fact and in no way subjective whatsoever, with the exception of Roz and ours absolute bay Donald Tusk, um, who have been the most pleasant European politicians that you've had to deal with? It's funny, Donald Tusk. Everyone loves Donald Tusk. Yeah, but he's not. But he's not. Don't, don't shut him. No, 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 not in front of me. You Stop. have no idea what they're going to do if you say something bad about him. That's like the only, so, the one, the only uh, point of how, no how can I say the this? most pleasant you, European politician? Apart from Donald Tusk, do you mean to Tusk, say he's not the man he seems to be on Instagram? Please so, don't tell me that. No, no, no. <laughs> No, on the contrary, Donald Tusk's speech to the 60th anniversary of the European Union Treaty of Rome was an absolute a heartbreaker, you know, from the shipyards of Gdansk to... So, so listen, he's a brilliant upfront politician. Was he a good steward of the European Council? I can tell you, in private, it's quite hard to find European capitals who felt that he was, right? Didn't really have the heft, didn't really have the clout. Um, you know, a man with a very itchy trigger finger on the Twitter on the Twitter on the Twitter feed, you know, which is great for us. You know, we love a good Donald Tw Tusk, you know, lobbing another brick through the window, but probably not, um, uh, you know, brilliant yeah, for, for yeah. that job. So, so that would be a part. Okay, so you're not going to steal Tusk Donald, off no. us. That's fine. But no, who no, would no. you pick though? Who's who's your favourite? For, for well, uh, Merkel, hard but fair. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, you, you you know, and and cautious, unlike yeah. some of the others. You know, unlike you know, and she's Vettel, not trigger happy with Vettel that. Vettel or that Macron, you know, histrionic. You know, so so you know, old Mutti, um, you know, you know, but hard, right, yeah. with a capital H. You know, an awful lot of completely, um, you know, misunderstood um, uh, 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 views about Merkel. You know, she she knows about German interests. Um, uh, when she sees them, um, it's easier to think of the bad guys than the good guys. You Go know? on then, one one bad one. Finish us off, Victor. Uh huh. Victor Orban. Yeah. You know, there's a there's a man who um, Roman has done has you know has really I think you know corroded institutions and democracy in Hungary in a way that is is genuinely dangerous and, and possible because Hungary is 
you know, small. I mean, there's lots of bad stuff going on in Poland, but Hungary, I think, is small enough that you really can corrupt that state. And it's encouraging to see some of the recent election results in, in Hungary and Budapest mm-hmm. and elsewhere. Mm. Just a quick reminder about our sister podcast on The House, where campaigning Lib Dem candidates Philip Lee and Sam Juma meet friends and rivals for a pint after politics every week. Philip Lee is flying solo on the current episode while Sam Juma is on the campaign trail in Kensington. So it's a doctor doubleheader with Philip talking to Dr Mike Galsworthy, founder of Scientists for EU and NHS for a People's Vote. There's a new On The House out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Have a listen. They're not going to do a free... This is the Americans. They're not going to do a free trade agreement with us after we leave the European Union unless it involves medicines and food. If you look at the free trade agreement the Americans cut with the South Koreans, it involved access to competitive drug pricing. Yeah. And the prices of drugs have done that. Now... The estimate I've seen, I've been chatting to Sarah Wallison about this, we're looking at a bill of more than 10 billion quid, potentially. It's a massive increase in drugs costs if we cut cut this free trade agreement. Now, why wasn't that on the side of a bus in 2016? And and it's a real killer because we're in a much more vulnerable situation, um, especially if, if we crash out at the end of 2020 and we have no trade deals whatsoever. We're desperate for any large trade deal. And America will absolutely try and shove this one down our throat because it's pharma companies and they control the trade policy of the US very, very strongly, as do their agriculture big players. And that's another thing that they're going to try and force different standards on us. And if we don't accept those standards, then we ain't getting any trade deal in any way, shape or form, which is the absolute fig leaf for what Brexit was meant to be about. So we put ourselves in an extremely vulnerable situation. And that's the end of the show, which means the Brexit time capsule, the overstuffed settee containing everything that we'll need or miss if we ever leave the EU, is coming up now. Peter, as our guest this week, you get to pick a person, animal, mineral or abstract concept Mm -hmm. to place inside the capsule. Mm -hmm. What's your choice? I think we might miss the common external tariff. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Years hence, people are going to be sat in the pub going, that common external tariff, why, you know, why we should have, we should have been paying that years ago. What a brilliant idea that is. Everyone pays the same tariffs and then everything can move freely between borders. <laughs> Don't have any checks at the paperwork. Fantastic. Yeah, no, the common external tariff. Brilliant. And if you've ever wanted to say, are you sure Brexit's a good idea in Finnish, then pay attention because listener Andrew Satukangas has this week's foreign language clip. Luuleksä todella, että tämä Brexit oli hyvä ajatus? Send us your foreign language excerpt, record something good and short on your phone and send it to info at romaniacs.com. And that's all we've got time for. Thanks to Ian and Roz, and thanks to Peter Foster from The Telegraph. Um, Peter, will you go back to the office and tell them that Remainers are actually fine and decent people who make you a nice cuppa? (laughs) No.
<laughs> not paying you enough. Um, thank you very much for coming in, and it really has been great to have you on. And now here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. As the band said last week on Twitter, it's time for loads and loads of people to visit ampleplay.co.uk to get their free download of the track. And it's time to thank our latest Patreon backers. Thanks from me to Ben, Victoria Beaton, Julia McLachlan, Ian Perkins, Mark Hadley, Nathan Petty, Roshi Sharma, David Tittle, Simon O'Hagan and Jack Blake. And hello from me to Tom Higginson, Dan Penny, Nick Firth, Mark Collier, Dominic Walsh, Robert Webb, Robert Webb, oh, thanks Tom. Carl Axel Ackerton, uh, Lucy Drake, Fran Llewellyn and Georgina Stedman. And hello and many thanks from me to Nicola Tao, Alex Richardson, Ian Ratcliffe, Tom Brown, Natalia Opre, Edward, Richard Webster, Teresa, Rooster Bark and Penny Allman Payne. Romaniacs was presented by Naomi Smith with Ros Taylor and Ian Dunn. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer was Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.